I'm Grant Oliphant, and this is We Can Be. Dr. Robin D'Angelo, thank you so much for doing the Tonight Show. Robin D'Angelo. Robin D'Angelo. Author Robin D'Angelo. digs into unconscious biases and why white people are so defensive when it comes to talking about race. He's author of this book, White Fragility. I love this title. White Fragility. And the subtitle is Why It's So Hard for White People to Talk About Racism. Thank you so much for joining us. In a 2011 peer-reviewed academic article, Today's We Can Be guest coined the phrase white fragility, and it struck a chord that has helped influence the national and eventually the international dialogue about race in a significant way. Robin D'Angelo went on to write White Fragility, Why It's So Hard for White People to Talk About Racism, which began an 85-week run on the New York Times bestseller list after its release in 2018. It has since been published in at least five languages, and as the Black Lives Matter movement swelled this past spring, white fragility again topped the bestseller lists. Robin is much more than one book, though. She earned her doctorate in multicultural education from the University of Washington, where she is an affiliate associate professor, and has written several other books, including 2012's Is Everyone Really Equal? and 2016's What Does It Mean to Be White? Developing White Racial Literacy. In recent months, she has been a sought-after guest on nearly every major network's news programs, a culmination of two decades of work as an educator, facilitator, consultant, and anti-racism advocate. Robin D'Angelo, welcome to We Can Be. Oh, I am so happy to be here. Thank you so much. We really had to work to find this time because you you are so (laughs) in demand at the moment. You have a wildly successful book about race at precisely the moment when the national dialogue and more importantly, we hope, national action regarding race is at a peak not seen since the civil rights movements of the 1950s and 60s. George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, most recently Jacob Blake, or just a few of the names the country has come to know as the Black Lives Matter movement has gained momentum over the past few months. And I'm just curious, you know, having written this book, how you're feeling being in this position at this moment. It's somewhat confusing. It's intense. I mean, we just have in general a social media culture in in which (laughs) people who are visible in the public eye are also subject to a lot of critique and challenge. All along, I've, you know, received hate mail and things like that. But it's also a time where we're talking about racism in a way that we haven't talked about it in the mainstream before. And for those of us who do this work, that's incredibly heartening. We've worked so long to get people to understand systemic racism, a concept like that. And we also, with the move, if you will, from the Black Lives Matter movement being seen as a terrorist organization to, you know, corporations putting signs on their advertisements supporting it, there's a more critical question of what it means to talk about race as a white person. Audre Lorde has a beautiful quote, the master's tools will never dismantle the master's house. In other words, how do you challenge a system when you're within the system? You know, part of what you're drawing attention to is the anger that surfaces when you raise these issues. And I know that part of the pushback you've gotten way back to your diversity trainings, and you talk about this in the book, is the phenomenon of 
white people feeling angry that you've told them, number one, that white is a race, and number two, that they have a responsibility to deal with racism, even in their own lives and their own thinking and the systems that they benefit from. Talk to us a little bit about where that anger comes from, and you keep encountering it what is going on there? Yeah, and it, you know what's funny is like I, I've stopped trying to address the anger from people that I, I might depict as on the far right or on the right. The best-selling book in America last week wasn't anything by J.K. Rowling. It was a tract called White Fragility by Robin DiAngelo. What's it about exactly? We read the book and we'll sum it up for you in four words. White people are racist. Logic is clearly not Robin D'Angelo's specialty. Neither is literate writing or clear thinking. She is a complete and total idiot. That's one thing you learn by the end of her book. This is basically a book by a cult leader. The book is just loaded with problems. It is absolutely insane. I mean, it's an insane book. You don't actually have to be conservative to spot absolute bullcrap when you see it. And this book is just that. Let me just say that the default of this society is racism. This is not an aberration, this is the norm. 24-7, 365, all of our institutions effectively and uh, efficiently reproduce racial inequality. Right. By every measure, black and brown people are gonna be at the bottom. And I move through a society in which racism is the norm in racial comfort. I'm just gonna repeat that. As a white person, I am comfortable in a racist society. Mm. We come to feel entitled to that comfort it comes to be seen as a breach in some kind of social contract that we should be uncomfortable. Probably the hardest thing of all for white people to look at is internalized superiority. I will confidently submit that all white people internalize a sense of racial superiority in this society. We all absorb racist ideology. We come to feel entitled to our advantage and our privilege. We come to feel that we deserve to have what we have from our hard work. So now you have ideologies of meritocracy, the ideology of individualism, which is also very precious to white people. There are white people listening right now who are upset because I'm generalizing about white people. And so to really grapple with this is to break with a lot of that, to challenge a lot of that, to cause discomfort. It serves us not to talk about racism. <laughs> right. We're invested in the status quo that is so comfortable and that results in continual advantage. So I, I confess, when I first encountered your book, I think like a lot of folks, I struggled over the concepts and really had to investigate my own reaction. And yet it immediately resonated because whenever we as an institution have, and this has been true for decades now, whenever we have tried to raise discussions about race or racism, typically the only folks who show up are black people. And through long history, I've learned that white folks in general don't want to think of themselves, or at least historically haven't wanted to think of themselves as part of the conversation. And I think you give us language for understanding that reaction and why we why we continue to believe we can get away with it. I hope so. First, I just want to um, thank you for something you just said, which was I struggled with it, which I'm mm. going to assume means there was some defensiveness. Oh, yes. But you also investigated your reaction. See, that's mm. key, that these reactions are potentially incredible sources of insight, right? If we use them to go inward rather than use them to refuse further engagement, which would be white fragility. To have some defensiveness is natural. To have some guilt is natural. 
the question is how do we use those reactions? Do we use them to refuse further engagement, growth, insight? Or do we say, wow, <laughs> all right, I don't like this, but you know, let me just take a minute to think about why I don't like this. What would it mean if it was true? What do I ultimately fear if I do take this up? How do I think about these issues that would cause me to react this way? And what would happen if I changed how I thought about them? That's for me, the juice of life. You view the opportunity here for American society and for white people in particular, actually, as being an opportunity to grow beyond our own limitations. You begin the book with a quote from Lillian Smith from her 1949 book, Killers of the Dream, which says, These ceremonials in honor of white supremacy performed from babyhood slip from the conscious mind deep down into the muscles and become difficult to tear out. What does that quote mean to you? And why was it important for you to start with that? Well, I do think it's a beautiful quote. <laughs> I mean, one, it names white supremacy. Yeah. It names how deeply internalized white supremacy actually is and how difficult it is to challenge. And I've often heard people say, just because of the color of my skin. And I would submit it's much deeper than that in the way that I move through the world, what I see, what I don't see, what I care about, what I don't care about. That idea that just because, it's like it's a fluke, oh well, and critical race scholar Zeus Leonardo says, that's kind of like saying, I walk through the street and people stuff money in my pocket and I don't know anything about that and have nothing to do with that. My psychosocial development was inculcated in the water of white supremacy. It is part of the way I see the world, think about the world, and move through the world. You grew up in a way that, you know, a lot of people think becomes a proxy for them not being racist, you know, that they are poor or that they're struggling or that they're working class and that they too have hardship. And I'm, I'm just curious how you came first to be conscious of color and how you have wrestled with your own background in terms of how it shaped your race consciousness. Yeah, you know, I'm just noticing, like, whatever we can do to get race off the table, it seems like white people will do, right? So if you grew up poor, you have no racial advantage or privilege because you grew up poor, right? right. But if you're middle class, you're going to offload all the racism to those who drive trucks in the South. <laughs> it's true, yeah, right. Oh, I learned the lessons of both classism and racism quite early. So, yes, I had a very deeply internalized sense of inferiority, of shame, someone who grew up poor, who had periods of homelessness in my childhood, and at the same time always knew that I was white and it was better to be white. Mm. And those lessons came to me really clearly also. And I would submit that being white helped me navigate poverty. I don't know how anyone really in genuineness can say that to be poor and white and poor and black are the same experience. When did the term white fragility come to you? Kind of came out of my mouth one day with a along with a rolling of the eyes, like, oh my God. <laughs> my eventual training in sociology had me actually ask, what framework of meaning, if you will, would lead to this irrational reaction? But also, how is it functioning? We're fragile in, in how quickly we fall apart and, and erupt in these ways. Right. But it's not fragile at all in its impact. It's incredibly intimidating. It works really well to cause people not to go there, not to challenge. And so it functions really well to protect 
the racist status quo. I'm curious, what are some of the other reasons that you've heard from white folks about why they believe they're not racist? You know, I used to believe this, by the way, because I moved to the States as an immigrant when I was a kid. And so I thought I was outside the system. And then eventually you realize, partly through works like yours, that you're still raised in the system and you're absorbing it literally through your skin. But what are some of the reasons that you've heard from white people about why they're not racist? And you mentioned immigrants. So here's a classic. Well, I immigrated from Germany, which is a homogeneous culture. And I, you know, so I learned nothing about racism. I have no racial bias, which, of course, right there, like, please. And I've been here 20 years. Right. Mm. And so what I would say is, uh uh-huh. And what neighborhood do you live in? Right. Uh, In your friendship circle. Isn't that interesting that you live a segregated life here in the U.S. and have for 20 years and you still feel confident to say you are free of all racial bias. That's one. I had a black roommate in college. Uh, I uh, work in a diverse organization. I live in XYZ. New York is a popular one. Uh, I come from Boston is a popular one. I mean, do you see me wanting to roll my eyes? Seriously? Yeah, right. And so much of the evidence we use is based on proximity. If this is the evidence we're using, then what do we think it means to be racist? That we think proximity shows that we're not racist. Oh, well, apparently you must believe a racist can't tolerate proximity, which I can assure you (laughs) that a racist can tolerate proximity. I actually wish every white person would ask themselves, what do I think qualifies as a racist? Right. What does it take? What are the criteria by which someone becomes a racist? When... uh White folks offer up these statements, and I've heard them many, many times. What does it do to dialogues about race and racism? I call it credentialing, right? Mm -hmm. All the ways that white people credential themselves as either not racist or less racist. All of that evidence functions to, one, exempt me from the society I live in, close the conversation, right? I mean, nothing to see here. Let's move on. I've established I'm not racist. It closes any further engagement. And it protects the current racial hierarchy and the white position within it. Further, they're not remotely convincing to most black people, most people of color. What you just told those folks is you are clueless. And as Erin Trent Johnson says, she's a black woman I often co-lead with. You've actually just told me that you're a dangerous white person. Mm. that you're going to deny my reality. We just have no idea that the things we say and do are not conveying what we think they are. And wouldn't you want to know that? Wouldn't you want to know that in a way you're kind of making a fool of yourself? <laughs> when you right. think what you're doing is showing how woke you are? You know, some of your harshest criticism and treatment is directed at white progressives for saying some of these things and believing some of these things, let's be clear, it's hard for folks who believe that they're doing the right thing and who passionately want to believe that they're doing the right thing, that they may also be the problem. And can you walk us through, first of all, why it is true that they're part of the problem and how we can move past it? One of the reasons why I think white progressives are the hardest is to the degree that it's so important to our identities not to be racist. We tend to be particularly defensive. We tend to be in denial and want to protect our biases by explaining them away, making sure you know that that wasn't racism, rather than, oh, am I missing something? Mm. How might that be? I can only imagine that for a black person to come across a Richard Spencer, Richard Spencer is a 
white nationalist. He's a key leader in the white nationalist movement. I would call him an avowed racist. Yeah. That, that might be rather terrifying. And yet on a daily basis, most black people aren't interacting with Richard Spencer. They're interacting with all these well-meaning white people. We're the ones you were your co-workers, your colleagues. We're on the board of the nonprofit. We're the ones that send so many black people home on a daily basis, exhausted, agonizing about whether it's worth it to try to talk to us, choosing to endure rather than risk more punishment. I have had so many black people say to me, actually, give me the Richard Spencers. I know exactly where they're coming from. I know how to protect myself. The white progressive is more likely to gaslight, the more likely to undermine me in ways I can't put my hands on, you know, mm. while they're smiling and being nice. So I'm always wanting every single person to ask themselves, not if they're part of the problem, but how. You've written and spoken about the concept of what you call new racism, a phrase coined by the film professor Martin Barker, which encompasses the ways in which racism has been adapted over time so that actions result in the same negative racial outcomes as they did in earlier eras while not outwardly appearing to be racist. So we've, you know, it's sort of the newer, more appealing version. What are some of the ways you see new racism happening in our society today? Prior to the civil rights movement, it was fairly socially acceptable to be explicitly racist. Let's just use mm -hmm. Archie Bunker as the archetype and the very tension of his younger, hipper children constantly saying, you can't do that anymore, dad, right? Post-civil rights, it, it became not acceptable. You became a bad person. This is where we set up this either or good, bad binary, which actually functioned beautifully to protect racism. It's an adaptation because it made it, you know, impossible to talk to the average white person about the inevitable absorption of a racist worldview. As a great example that we can never be complacent, we're back to permission to be explicitly racist again. I mean, just watch the RNC. Your vote will decide whether we protect law-abiding Americans or whether we give free reign to violent anarchists and agitators and criminals who threaten our citizens. Rioters must not be allowed to destroy our cities. Human sex drug traffickers should not be allowed to cross our borders. They want to control what you see and think and believe so that they can control how you live. They want to enslave you to the weak, dependent, liberal, victim ideology to the point that you will not recognize this country or yourself. Ladies and gentlemen, leaders and fighters for freedom and liberty, the best is yet to come. So it's a very adaptable system. I'm glad that we're not talking about Black Lives Matter. Black Lives Matter can begin to be like a Hallmark card. And I, I've told this story of recently being in a major supermarket chain and above the gourmet cheese cooler was a sign that said Black Lives Matter. So it can also begin to be stripped of any meaning. Sure. We live in a culture that manages to dumb down everything. You know, it's a mass consumerist culture. So the moment anything starts to catch on as a slogan, you know it's going to go through a slow death and bleeding away of its meaning. And I'm curious, though, in the sort of society we live in, what is the alternative? How do we navigate getting those values out there and celebrating them at the very same time that we're seeing this rise in the permission to resort to old-style racism, and how do we square those things? I'm not sure I have an answer. 
in my lifetime, I haven't seen this degree of divisiveness in the culture that is from the very top. I'm just thinking, who can hear me? And I'm going to focus on that. When I feel discouraged, I think about Malcolm Gladwell's tipping point theory. And he says, we only need 30%. And so then I'm like, okay, I think I can get 30%. And I think that if white people would proceed with humility, with an understanding that it's actually more more likely that we are the ones that don't understand the issue, if we listen and take direction, if we always see it as an ongoing process, one in which we never arrive, it's a lot like getting in shape. People say, all right. You don't go work out once. And you're not in shape on Monday. So when people say, what do I do? It's like, that's like saying, how do I be in shape on Monday? You will make mistakes. Also, we want to be thoughtful, but not so careful that we take no risks and that we're disingenuous. It's a pretty deep, complex, ongoing process that doesn't have a a formulaic answer. You know, I think realistically, it is hard for people to internalize that they have to keep at this. And I think for many folks, going back to white progressives, it's also scary to take risks and make mistakes, right? And to acknowledge that you will. I want to ask you about young people. So you do not buy the notion that young people are less racist than previous generations, I think. In my analysis of this, I've been very worried that Trumpism has indoctrinated a whole new generation of kind of super racist kids. But I I don't think it can just be tied to Trumpism. But I'm curious why you don't believe young people today are less racist than their forebears. Well, to connect to the example you just gave, white nationalism is spreading very quickly and mostly recruiting among young people. But if we're going to talk about just progressive young people, because they live in the same culture and absorb the same ideologies, because schools are deeply segregated, so are neighborhoods, that very few young people actually live integrated lives. There's often a false sense of cross-racial relationships. If our heroes, maybe our sports figures or our musicians are black, there's a common dynamic, and I think it comes a bit out of that whole um, South Park kind of you know, everything's ironic. So I I can say the most racist things. And as long as it's ironic, I can get away with it. You know, there's a book called Two-Faced Racism, I think I quote from it, that studied college students. And the degree of explicitly like uh, racist jokes and things they make is no different than when I was growing up. They just nuance when they say it. Mm-hmm. and how they respond to people who rarely, but on occasion, interrupt it. So yeah. there's a recent example that I use in my new book, by the way, <laughs> called Niceness is Not Courageous, How huh. White Progressives Uphold <laughs> Racism. This one's really focused on white progressives, of asking people to the prom, and a young person locally held up a sign that said, if I was black, I'd be picking cotton, but I'm not, so I'm picking you. And then just exploded in in hurt and upset when that was called out as racism. That's a form of new racism. That you even know to say that, at the same time you have this kind of false consciousness that would cause you to feel hurt when it's called out to you. Robinson dashes for the plate. And umpire Summers calls him safe on the daring maneuver. And the fans will never forget the sight of Jackie Robinson preparing for the plate on his daring steal. 
One of the ways in which you've received pushback, this has been an argument that has come at you from the left, which mm -hmm. is that in centering whiteness, you have implied that power resides purely on the white side of the equation. And so the example you gave with Jackie Robinson in the book, a true framing of what happened with him would acknowledge that he was not the first black athlete in history to be able to play at that level, but he was the first one who was given permission. And how do whites who want to be serious about this navigate that so that we are acknowledging the imposition of the systems without disempowering the personal narrative of black folks who have overcome it? You acknowledge his amazing skills, his courage and stamina, what he endured. In addition to him having all of these strengths and skills, there was also a system that opened so that he could use those strengths and skills. You, you just cannot take that from the table. You can't act like he himself alone just was so amazing that he broke that color line. <laughs> right. No, white people opened the door to him. It's not useful to take away the reality of structural racism. And it's not just to blame white people. Obviously, there were white activists who worked to make that happen. There's so much more that could come from that story. I don't think it takes his agency away. In some ways, to not acknowledge that, well, it might make him be super special. What does it say for all the other black people who are not then exceptional? Yeah. I don't think asking white people to be more open and educated and aware and critical thinkers and develop some skills infantilizes black people. It's similar to Rosa Parks, you know, a tired washerwoman who one day decided to sit down. Right. No, she was an activist and she was very strategically chosen. You know, the question that comes to mind, of course, is how do we change this? And, you know, on the one hand, I look at the attention your book has received and that books like Ibram Kendi's How to Be an Anti-Racist, you know, there's a, there's a new literature suddenly being absorbed by a lot of America, the reading public at least, that is, you know, people are paying attention more than they have. You're being invited into major companies, so are others, you know, Nike, American Express, Facebook, you know, on down a list of the really big companies who are saying, hey, we want to change this to your point earlier. There's Black Lives Matter uh, logos appearing on the unlikeliest of places. And so we're seeing an adoption of that way beyond, I think, what we would have imagined possible a couple of years ago. And yet we're here having this conversation after the shooting of yet another black man in the back by police, and then just immediately after the shooting of protesters by a young white kid who's allowed to walk by police carrying a semi-automatic rifle. It is fair to ask, is any of this anti-racist literature, this consciousness-raising work working, or what will it take to change? Awareness without action is meaningless. I see myself as an educator or a consciousness raiser. I really want to open white people's eyes and help them see something they're not seeing now and do it in a way that is so impactful that they can't not see it. And then there are also organizers. What I hope to do in a way is to deliver readers to the organizers, to people who do think deeply and have thought long about policy change and reform. Actually, I should say reform 
is not going to work. We cannot reform our current criminal justice system. We actually need to revolutionize it. And so we have to just keep sustained. It's a lot like water dripping on a rock. Mm. You know, it's not going to end in my lifetime, but I'm going to just continually do what I can. And I hope every white person engages in that way. That would be hopeful. Uh, I mean, I think white fragility resonated because even people manifesting it recognize the dynamics I'm talking about. They're so ubiquitous. What do we need to see to get out of denial? You know, for 20 years, I've been asking people of color, how often have you given a white person feedback on this inevitable (laughs) racist stuff and had that go well for you? And the number one answer to that question, honestly, is never. Yeah. I'll never forget asking, all right, well, what would it be like if you could just give us that feedback and had us receive it with grace, reflect on the behavior and seek to change it? What would that be like? I'll never forget a black man raising his hand and saying it would be revolutionary. Mm. And I'm just like, wow. I mean, Mm -hmm. that's a strong word. Revolutionary that we receive it with grace, reflect and seek to change. That's how difficult we are, that that's a freaking revolution. But also, that's not that tall an order, is it? My goodness, for what we profess to value, is that a really tall order? No. When you change your understanding of the inevitability of your conditioning into racism, then you can respond in that way. And then white fragility is not functioning to police people into not challenging this stuff. Robin, the name of this program is We Can Be, and uh, we usually ask our guests to conclude by sharing what they think we can be. We can be so much more humble and curious and open, so much less defensive. We can be transformed and liberated through this beautiful, beautiful lifelong journey. Painful at times, yes, but deeply rewarding, challenging, stimulating, and it will bring things and skills and people into your life that no other journey could ever bring to you. This has really been a terrific conversation. I feel fortunate that we've been able to have it. One of the things that leapt out at me in this conversation was the idea, and you introduced this with a quote from Audre Lorde's poem, the notion that we're not going to be able to change the master's house with the master's tools. We have to change how we do things if we're ever going to fix this problem and that it is necessary in the context of that to take a look at the thing in our society we never want to look at, which is whiteness and the role it plays in our own thinking. You touched also in this conversation on the notion that the default position of this society is racism, that if you live in this society, you in some way are touched by it. As a white person, you benefit from it, and it's very comfortable to ignore it because it is built for you. 
unless we're willing to challenge our own assumptions about it, we won't even see the discomfort. I think what you're presenting us with is an opportunity for white people to grow, to not be trapped in a paradigm that we don't even see. You do single out white progressives for harsh treatment, and that is much of the audience of this podcast. And certainly, you know, I'm in that camp. You are challenging a group of people who want desperately to be seen as allies, as on the good side, as being the good ones to investigate their own assumptions about what that looks like and whether we really are. And I loved your plaintive question at one point about what do we need to see to get out of our denial? And you called out too that awareness without action is meaningless. We obviously need to change our own individual attitudes and perceptions and how we frame our own thinking and our actions. But there's also a need to plug that into drives for policy change and, and also drives for leadership change. And finally, for me, uh, one of the takeaways that I will really cherish from this conversation is that we have to take risks, that we have to make mistakes, and that we have to accept criticism. And that it would be revolutionary if we could just receive criticism with grace and grow from it. Robin, thank you so much for what you've shared with us today. You are so welcome, and thank you for that beautiful summary. 